Good evening, and welcome to my podcast. I'm Jacob, and this is Post Everything. That's right. It's been so long since my first podcast that the name has actually changed between episodes. So use the new name, Post Everything, if you go looking for my episodes. Today, I have a conversation with Michael Gibson. Now, Michael has dedicated the last five five or more years of his career to the thesis that young people, particularly those between the ages of about, say, 14 to 20 years old, are a lot more capable than we give them credit for. He was on the founding team at the Teal Fellowship, which was uh, either famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, for paying young people under the age of 20 to take a pause from formal education and pursue their entrepreneurial dreams. Since leaving the Teal Fellowship, Michael has founded a fund called 1517, which takes that thesis one step further, investing in the companies of founded by young people. Now, Michael is a little bit of a worldly philosopher. Uh, he has a background in formal philosophy. Uh, he reads Plato in ancient Greek, but, and, he, and that influences him to analyze and think about his life and, and the choices that he makes in it. And that makes for a really great conversation, so I was happy to have him on. Um, in our conversation, we start off talking about philosophy and how it applies to life, and we end up going all over the place, talking about different visions of utopia, um, finding community in the modern world, all, all sorts of things. So without any further ado, here is our conversation. I know that you were once a doctoral student of philosophy at Oxford University. Is that correct? Yep. But you didn't get all the way through. No. Um, is there, could you speak to the place that philosophy has in your life and how that course of study affects you? Yeah. So maybe at the highest level, it, it's actually quite practical in, in terms of the way, the way it led me on my career path, which is, which I, is very unusual in the scheme of things. Um, so I dropped out of grad school. I uh, wrote for MIT's technology review as a journalist for some time. And then I started volunteering for a nonprofit called the Seasteading Institute. Uh, it was through a, an event, uh, Ephemeral, the festival, uh, that I met some people who worked for Peter Thiel. They said there was a job opening on, at his hedge fund on the research side. And I didn't have any plans to work in finance, uh, but uh, I, I went down the rabbit hole and then uh, ended up in an interview with Peter. And, uh, and then he offered me a job. And, and now, I mean, five, now we're almost five and a half, six years after that. And I've spun out of working for Peter my uh, colleague Danielle Strachman, we've launched a, a small venture capital fund called 1517, and uh, we make early stage investments. So how did I go from studying philosophy to swinging through these vines all the way to being here in SF and uh, working in venture capital? And, and the truth is, is philosophy led the way. So when I was uh, in undergrad, I 
uh, a friend of mine who studied philosophy. I, we were just talking about politics, and this guy was well more, way more well-versed than I was in, in political theory. And he said, look, if you're going to if you're going to have anything interesting to say, if you're going to be able to talk about things, you got to read John Rawls Theory of Justice and you got to read Robert Nozick Anarchy State Utopia. Nozick's a libertarian, Rawls is progressive left wing, and both of them sort of comprise the whole of modern academic philosophy and everything else is just footnotes. It's like, okay, that's good advice. And so I went down that rabbit hole and uh you know, Rawls's style is very dry. He writes more like a bookkeeper and accountant than a poet philosopher. And so there's not much that's memorable there besides the main elements of his, you know, he has these thought experiments. He has these ideas about how we can arrive at uh, just justice and our decisions about that. Um, but that didn't really, it, it wasn't convincing and my biases were the other way. So when I read Nozick, it was as if I was reading a symphony and uh, his thought was just so daring in this book. I mean, if you, he, he goes through game theory, the history of philosophy, um, decision theory. He was at the cutting edge of that in the 60s. I mean, that was new stuff coming out of Princeton, and he applied it to philosophy for the first time. And he provided what I thought was a devastating t- knockdown uh, against egalitarianism. That's in the first two-thirds of the book. The last third of the book is called Utopia, and it was the most overlooked section in any sort of class you might take on on his book because everyone wants to pay attention to the parts where he's breaking lances with John Rawls. But in the last section of the book, he envisions, he goes through all the failings of all these proposed utopias. And then he proposes something like a meta-utopia, a community of communities where the cost of exit and entry is zero. And he imagines, okay, what kind of world might emerge where these communities are competing for residents in some fashion. And, and I just thought that was extremely bold and interesting and unlike anything I had read uh, in the past. And so that idea became seminal for me because let's fast forward some years. I, uh, I studied the classics. So, so yeah. the Nozick's Utopia sounds um, a bit like uh, what uh, a blogger, uh, Scott Alexander, calls his archipelago concept okay i'm not familiar with that i think you might call it that but it's there's this idea is is recurring uh, i think in um in science fiction and in on blogs of having like a community of communities so that rather than trying to figure out utopia you give people the freedom to choose right like what kind of lifestyle is utopia for them yeah and that's the only way that we can actually all get along because people are actually different and actually have different preferences. yeah there's this wonderful section in nozick's book where he lists uh, it's a paragraph of just names wittgenstein the lubavitcher reeb uh <laughs> you know lenny bruce elizabeth taylor jane austen uh, John Lennon, whoever. And, and then he says, is there any one community that would satisfy uh, the preferences and lifestyles of all these people? And, and it just, I don't know, I find it very persuasive. It's like, yeah, it's interesting. Why there, there is this sort of reach to universalism in a lot of political thought now and even morality where we, we just assume that uh, the judgments that hold for us in our local circumstances ought to hold for maybe the country or the world as a whole. And so to see someone uh, argue for a, a really robust federalism or some kind of uh, system of competing jurisdictions, enclaves, cities, uh, where 
where you're not in typical and what's makes it atypical for a libertarian is to say community matters and the, you know those thick values that uh, really fill out a way of life things like trust and, and and maybe other deeper values that libertarians aren't necessarily always concerned with is like those things matter but they matter because people or they will work when people have some sort of decision about which communities to opt into and opt out of um, I Okay, yeah, that I, I found really interesting, and and then uh, it was because of that I dropped out of grad school, and then when I saw the Seasteading Institute, form, Wait, because of that you dropped out of grad. No, school. no, no. Sorry, okay. sorry. This was this was years later. Okay, I, I I I studied the classics. I studied ancient philosophy. I can read Latin and ancient Greek, and I was interested in Plato and uh, and and all that. And I, I went down different pathways. I wasn't always concerned with political philosophy, but. Um, but at Oxford, I mean, it started to come up again. And then when I left, Pottery Friedman, funded by Peter Thiel, started the Seasteading Institute. And, and its mission was sort of to uh, create a concrete uh, realization of this community of communities, or you know, at least to really try to address that problem of new entry into the market for communities and governments, and then uh, and also trying to lower the costs. Uh, and seeing that dynamic also as as a way to really uh, make, you know, raise the standards of livings for people and to give them more fulfilling lives than they otherwise would have. And so, 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 I, so I like yeah. I like to fill people in just no. on um, some concepts they might not be familiar with. Like I'm very familiar with seasteading. Yeah. Would, would you mind? <laughs> okay. Just uh, yeah, giving us a couple sentences on what. So seasteading is. is the name comes from homesteading in the 19th century. The American government opened up some lands uh, and provided an incentive. I forget exactly how it worked, but the idea was that if, if you wanted to claim the land, there were land grabs, and that was the incentive for people to populate the frontier, uh, and that was called homesteading. So seasteading wants to apply a similar idea to the sea, where we've run out of land. So there's no, without overthrowing a government or taking it over, there's no land for us to try new experiments on. But if we could somehow reclaim the sea for land and build platforms or other floating structures, uh, we might be able to experiment with new forms of governance. And if the technology were robust enough, maybe even have cities that float on the ocean in, in a science fiction fantasy future. Um, so the, it was political in its aim in the sense of, okay, there's no more frontier, there's outer space, but the ocean is closer. So Maybe we can uh, support research or, uh, you know, just solidarity around the idea. And so the organization was formed to do that. Part of that entailed ephemeral. It started off as maybe just a long weekend. Uh, the idea was people could rent boats, houseboats, other objects, and, and tie them together in the Sacramento River Delta. And it's ephemeral because it only lasts a few days. Um, and, and, and that was a lot of fun. It's taken on a life of its own. A TSI, Seasteading Institute, had to divorce itself from the, from the festival because of liability issues. And now it's completely self-organized and probably uh, a bigger event and entity than TSI itself in some ways. But, uh, but yeah, so Seasteading, Patry Friedman behind that. And, and if I had not had that seed planted, if I had not really thought about uh, that that justice is not some cosmic idea that needs to be imposed universally, that uh, experimentation is lacking in governance right now. Uh, I wouldn't have been primed to see that opportunity. And so I volunteered for 
the organization, and I started writing a blog on it called Let a Thousand Nations Bloom. And that really gave me a venue to explore a lot of these ideas, whether it's grabbing headlines that are relevant or expounding on some of the underlying philosophy behind the motivate, you know, the philosophy motivating the Seasteading Institute. And uh, and it was because I wrote for that blog that uh, the people who worked for Peter Thiel knew who I was. Uh, they were intrigued by uh, you know some of my thoughts and and. And uh, once they learned about my background, they thought I'd be qualified for this role. And so when I interviewed with Peter, we didn't talk about finance. We didn't talk about venture capital. We didn't talk about startups. We talked about philosophy and, and things we you know, thought were libertarians get wrong, uh, changes we would like to make. And, and one of the things we both agreed on and talked at length about was just this sort of failure of methodological individualism that... You know, we're, we're not just atoms, we're rational, rationally self-interested atoms moving around in a void uh, with a, some deviations from time to time. Uh, instead, I think that the, there are social organisms and, and they do seem to take a life of their own. And so we were talking about Durkheim and then this feeds into one of Peter's favorite philosophers, Rene Girard, because he's always interested in social dynamics versus individual behavior. And it was based off this, again, philosophy. That's all we talked about. And then he said, yeah, do you want to come work on my research team and help me teach a class at Stanford Law School on sovereignty, globalization, and technological change? And I said, okay, I can't pass that up. Um, so, yeah, that, so at a really practical level, that long story of biography was is just really to highlight, like, okay, ideas matter because I, I pursued what was interesting to me. And then it turned out that in my career, other people were interested in those things. They found different expressions. And then, uh, and then you know, I don't know why Peter hired me, but I think one of the reasons was that, uh, you know, it's just that kind of level of, I, I don't know what the method of thinking, style of thinking, this broad-based view of uh, investigation and um, considering things and, and searching for understanding. I, I think he appreciated it. So. Yeah, so for you... Um philosophy has had an effect on your life in a, in a very direct way in which yeah. like the the thing that you were, were studying you ended up later like working for people who are trying to make you know some version of Nozick's utopia a reality of a yeah. community of communities that people could opt in opt into and um you know with seasteading the idea is starting up a new nation might be uh, might take on the order of like 10 million dollars which is a lot of money, but it's about the price of a skyscraper uh, rather than, um, I don't know how much funding a revolution would cost, <laughs> but, you know, something on the order of billions of, of dollars. Um, yeah. and, and you probably need to have the backing of an existing nation. That's normally how these, how revolutions work. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and even Ephemeral, which is this, uh, this festival, um, you didn't make it out this year, but... Yeah. Um, there's a way in which it really is becoming sort of a microcosm of that community of communities. And you, mm -hmm. people have choices between um, which one they want to be a part of. Uh, I was part of the, the largest island at Ephemeral, which has a lot of safety rules and is f very focused on the safety of its participants. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a, a group of of re repeat attendees who have split off from that okay, because yeah. they don't want to have to carry around safety whistles and lights with yeah. them at all time and they don't believe in the sort of strict consent rules around touch that 
that the larger island had adopted. Mm. And so there, this year there's about four different groups oh, of wow. islands. Okay. And so I saw the, this, this idea of competing jurisdictions and sort of people being mm. able to find their own bliss, like actually coming into existence yeah. uh, at Ephemeral, which, which is pretty That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back next year. This was the first year I missed it. Um, you know, this idea of competing dis- jurisdictions, I think, is really important when you look at the broad sweep of history. Uh, Peter Thiel, I can't you know, help but eat, be influenced by him. And he's been talking about this sort of uh, stagnation and in innovation outside of uh, computer technology for, I don't know, let's say, call it 1973. And uh, a lot of economists have picked up on this. Tyler Cowen, The Great Stagnation. Robert Gordon just published a book on the rise and fall of American growth. So the, uh, when I first started working for Peter, that actually wasn't the consensus. Now it is that uh, we, we're not seeing major innovations outside of, of computers. And one thing I noticed, uh, there's some research, you know, just about... Uh, technological change and creativity and there's this guy cardwell he's a historian and there's a it's not really a law but they call it cardwell's law which is that no nation state stays at the forefront of the frontier in technology for long and and so i started getting interested in what are the political uh what is the political economy of a nation such that at sometimes it's it's technologically creative and at others it isn't and and i i was naturally drawn to this uh economist joel moiker has a book called the lever of riches and what his theory was that europe outcompeted china and uh and other examples in history maybe even rome uh you know why did why did europe succeed where those places failed so in china for instance they had paper they had gunpowder in the 14th century uh, 15th century they had ships that could traverse the oceans uh, and then all of a sudden it just fell apart became very insular place they started banning things and their the rate of technological uh, advance waned Um, but europe always you know just carried the torch forward so moiker's analysis is actually that it was competing jurisdictions so europe uh was somewhat unified in the sense of they had a community of scientists who would communicate with each other their findings uh inventors too artists but they had these independent nation states and so if any one technology was banned in in a country if the established interests were strong enough to prevent it from attaining wide adoption uh people would inventors and so on would just travel to a different principality where they could pursue it and so you have people like leonardo da vinci serving different kings uh spinoza moved from spain to holland um just time and again those stories repeat themselves and so his theory is that the the creativity was so high because people were competing uh but in war directly in conflict but then also uh just for the best minds and 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 so I I apply that to today. I think I think we're losing out on on a lot of advances because each the whole world is turning Amish. Not the whole world, but uh, some portions of it. I mean, we could talk about China or something. And and I guess they're moving ahead with genetic testing that would be seen as verboten here. Um, but yeah, I I wonder if if. You know, a good question to ask is in in 50 years, there's something like 193 countries right now 
according to the UN, in 1945, maybe there were, I think, 80, can't remember exactly, but fewer than there are today. And so a good question to ask is about the state of the world is, okay, in 30 years, how many nations are there going to be? Are there going to be 250 or are there going to be one? And, uh, you know, what are the drivers behind that? And I, and, and I fear, my fear is that we need more, but we're going to get less and it's going to make life worse. Yeah, I guess the, the, the conflict there seems to be between people that think uh, some sort of unity of mankind is vital for our survival because yeah. warfare has gotten more destructive and we can't afford the creative competition that comes through warfare like happened in Europe uh, in the past yeah. because... Now we have the atom bomb and... Yeah, that's right. Um, so so we need this, one world state to police yeah, against so, terrorists and other criminals who might blow things up, release, I don't know, engineered viruses that can wreak havoc, right? Yeah, and then there's people who see that, you know, that, that unity as being stifling mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, one world, mean, one world government means one set of regulations yeah. and... Um, and it'll happen that if that one government is very risk averse and doesn't want to allow some particular technology, mm. your future, um, your future inventors can't pick up uh, shop in Spain and move to Holland or something like that, <laughs> no. because Spain and Holland will both be under some world government that decides the rules for everybody. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a future I fear. And I think I think we're approaching that. And there are different. I guess there are countervailing forces. On the one hand, it seems like uh, the world is moving towards one regulatory state. You see this in the monetary system, where central banks are trying to coordinate with each other uh, to govern the whole world. Um, and then maybe you see it too, and in, in, in war and in other related issues. I guess the the, the countervailing force might be that. Uh, because of the stagnation, we're starting to see resentment across populations that have not done well over the last 10 to 20 years. And I think those people are, their, their intuitions are turning back towards nationalism, uh, provincialism. Uh, they're becoming a little more xenophobic. And, and while I don't like those motivations, I do see some, I, there are some potential upsides uh, for um, diversity in the sense of if England does leave the EU, which is a failed project, maybe there is short-term pain and it's motivated improperly or, or by, uh, I don't know, disreputable people, but in the long run, it might help help the world out. Yeah, that's a, certainly a, a minority opinion. Think, Very much so. I think nowadays <laughs> that these um, countervailing nationalist forces might, uh, by producing more competition in governance and more choices over where under what regimes people are able to live um, ultimately do more good even if they're motivated by yeah. sort of xenophobia or more fearful and less less enlightened motivations yeah um, um, now maybe to transition to go back to just philosophy and, and thinking about life one place where I, I'm surprised at how little influence it's had on me is in my day-to-day judgments about right and wrong and what to do so there's a whole branch of philosophy about, you know, what makes an act good and what the right thing is to do in any situation. And there are competing theories about, you know, how we evaluate them. One, one is, let's say, utilitarianism and its offspring, consequentialism. Another is, uh, you know, this rules-based obligation deontology. 
and then uh, and then maybe another branch might be from the ancients this idea of virtue ethics and uh, you know, I, and then there are all sorts of thought experiments to tease these things apart in which way, you know, where do you fall on them? But I, I find it surprisingly uh, irrelevant when I think about what I should do with my life or, you know, how I should run my business or, uh, you know, outside of like a broad virtue theory, maybe that you, you just want to be you do want to be courageous. You want to be wise and, and then maybe you're muddling your way trying to figure out what that means. But uh, I have not you know, applied the principle of maximizing the utility for the greatest number of people to my decisions. Is it more of a, like a, an intuitive approach that you take to ethics or? Yeah, I, I think, uh, and I'm influenced just by human, the study of human nature. I think there's been a lot of work done in recent years that it's pretty compelling on uh, our moral judgments. Um, you know, often they're, they're just innate and, uh, uh, and and there's some heritability too to which way they cut. Um, I don't think uh, I think it's pretty clear. Like Kant thought that uh, th- what was right and wrong derived from our reason about how uh, you know we come up with these rules, reasoning about them in the world and how we coordinate things together. But uh, David Hume, it turns out, is probably right that it's not reason but emotion and intuition that drives our our emotion our our moral judgments. And then maybe we can reason about them and alter them. But it's probably more like uh, the rider on the elephant, where uh, there's some control, but but it can be quite difficult. Well, wow, um, you know, I when I studied philosophy, uh, I took a philosophy class in college, yeah. um, and I had this the thing that turned me off. I took two actually. I took also a class specifically in ethics, and the thing that turned me off was this feeling that these debates have just been going around for millennia <laughs> and never getting anywhere. And right. it, it feels like you just made, um, you just, you just solved one of these problems. You said, David, Hume, <laughs> right. And it's, you know, ethics is well, really about yeah. emotions and not about reason. I think, yeah. If you look at the neuroscience and you look at the regions of the brain that are active, or you look at, uh, anomalies where some people have damage to their brains, and they're missing regions and, and like they're perfectly rational and can look at things, but they're incapable of making decisions because there's no emotional valence behind them. Um, yeah, though, like Damasio is a good person to read on this. Jonathan Haidt is brilliant. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, uh, Haidt, I've, I've, or Haidt, I'm not sure how to say Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, yeah. he, uh, I've, I've listened to some of podcast interviews mm. he's, he's done. I haven't actually read the book, The Righteous Mind. Okay, yeah. But there's something about his approach, which is approaching ethics uh, not from first principles but mm-hmm. going out and interviewing people and figuring out like yeah. what it, what is it that people actually find ethical and coming up with this you know this mishmash of like five or six different principles that yeah. people seem to be balancing between um and there's something just really compelling about that to me that mm. like you yeah, go you go and like see what people are actually doing yeah and, and instead of I, like, what's kind of cool in, in his story i think if i get this right is that he noticed at first, because he was on a university campus, he's, he's only interviewing uh, people who come to school there. And so they had pretty uniform beliefs about things like fairness and harm. Uh, but then it was only when he went out into the field. Uh, in, I, I can't remember which regions of the world, maybe in Asia and other places. But he noticed that there were these other moral intuitions that university students didn't have. For instance, uh, intuitions about cleanliness and purity and how that relates to morality so you see this in some practices where you can't enter a temple with shoes on 
Um, or, you know, if, if someone commits a moral wrong, they feel dirty and soiled. You've soiled something about yourself uh, by, by doing something wrong. And, and, and also the body, the treatment of the body. Is the body a temple or is it a playground? It's like Western liberalism. It's a playground. And, and it's a lot of fun. I get that. But, but it's kind of eye-opening. What I love about Haidt is, um, you know, he probably, I think he's probably left a center guy, but he came to appreciate that the moral intuitions that conservatives have about things are, it's something they sense and feel. And it's, it's something that traditional liberals just don't. And so in a way, these people are taught, it's like a colorblind person talking to someone, a color-sighted person, and they're arguing about what they see. And that, uh, and that, that's kind of comforting in a way. It means, yeah, we're not going to arrive at some answers to philosophical questions. We're not going to make progress just because our natures are different. And it's sort of a, um, another argument for plur, plur, pluralism. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, um, yeah good. Um, the, uh... So I, I do want to touch back on uh, one thing you, you mentioned earlier that mm-hmm. I, I think um, might be interesting, which is um, something about... Uh, social organisms existing okay, and, yeah, sure. and not being and us not being uh, isolated individuals um, right. there's a I, I think there's there's a way that this is a common theme in people I talk to uh, that people feel out of place mm-hmm. in this um, sort of very connected world that's slowly becoming a global culture um, people are looking for where they belong mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and to some extent, I think the nationalism that we see rising up in the world is, is also yeah. driven by that feeling of wanting to find a place where we belong and with borders being erased and mm-hmm. national identity being erased, um, it, it becoming people just feeling more lost. Um, like I'm, I'm wondering uh, how, you, um, how, how you go about, how, how do you see community or today? How do yeah. you belong to it? I, uh, I, I think that you, I think that's a big problem today. I agree with that. I think there's a uh, lot of. Sur- are sur- are you a rootless cosmopolitan, Mike? I I I hate the word rootless because it suggests I don't have roots. I'm just looking for a place to put them down. Um, I get where the criticism's coming from because it's like the the people who go to Harvard and Stanford and graduate and maybe study abroad for a year. And then come back and work at McKinsey or Goldman Sachs and, and so on. They seem to have more in common uh, about the, the literature they love, the poetry they read, the movies they laugh at, and so on, the clothes they wear. They have more in common with people in London and Berlin and so on than they do with someone in uh, the Blue Mountains of North Carolina or uh, you know, other regions of the US. And, and so I, like the rootless cosmopolitanism, I think, is becoming a tribe into a, onto its own, with its own values and patterns of behavior. Um, I don't think it's, it, yeah. I, I, I think those people, though, in that group do suffer from a, sense, a, a longing for community and, and meaning. And I think it's in part because uh, they have nothing greater than themselves to really attach on to. I think, so going back to, I think Nietzsche was, yeah, he, uh, one of the great prophecies that he made was, well, for one thing, he, he announced the death of God. And what he meant by that was not a declaration of his atheism, although he was one, but it was more about the sources of value 
uh, in people's lives. And he said that once the, his prediction was that uh, once the death of God was complete and people no longer found comfort uh, from churches, let's say, and religion, um, that, that impulse was not going to go away. And so if you clear out the intermediary uh, organizations and social organisms in between the individual and the state, the individual is going to grab onto the state. And, and what he foresaw was in, in the coming century, you know, the greatest wars of all time as barbarian hordes tried to murder each other in the name of nation states. And so that's one of the eye-opening things that, uh, wow, he got that right. And, 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 uh, and I think the problem is... is, is is accurately diagnosed where these organizations that used to have authority for people uh, are now they're not legitimate it's as if they don't ha- they're they don't have electricity anymore and so people are desperate and they're searching for things and so they reach on to things like socialism national socialism or patriotism and 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 it's not to denigrate those things like patriotism completely but I do think people reach to the nation state more than they used to in the past because because of that gap in their lives. Um, what I do personally, I, I'm working on it. I don't know. I'm looking for things. I mean, it's like the communities we're a part of. Uh, ephemerile is a good example. Uh, the sorts of individuals uh, that are a part of that. I, I do hunger for a deeper purpose that I want to be, a, you know, that I have, I want to know that I'm building a cathedral and I'm, I'll get to put my brick in its place and I may not get to see the grandeur of the whole thing in my lifetime. There's a, I want to be a part of that, and so I, I, I do reject the rootless cosmopolitanism. Um, but on the other hand, I've lost faith in uh, our unjust nation state and some of its uh, shortcomings. I've it's hard not to be cynical about politics in the U.S. and the election. It's uh, hard for me to connect locally. I mean, maybe that's something I can try harder on: is to really embrace San Francisco as my home, and. Uh, maybe get out and do more for more people. I don't know, but uh, it's, uh, I think you're right to say that, that it's, it's a problem. It's something we all need to think about. So, um, yeah, I think Nietzsche, Nietzsche was right um, as far as saying that people were going to lash onto the na- nation state mm-hmm. and, and go to war with each other. That totally, that definitely happened World War One, World War Two. Uh, unleash terrible devastation and change the way that we think about war um, and think about the nation state and th- th- think about everything. It, was, yeah. it transformed the world um, in some irreversible ways. But we're, we're sort of in this, I think, after that phase now. Like we're in this um, post, yeah. post-apocalypse post and, and we're still alive. <laughs> and, um, That's true. And yeah, things and are maybe God different. isn't dead. You know, maybe it's, we're just in polytheistic world where that would be hopeful. I think uh, there is a way that I think in the um, in sort of the mid twentieth century, humans became really good at deconstructing uh, magic and getting rid of it. Um, mm. Like I think people even believe in states a lot less nowadays. Like um, we're there's a certain there's a, a large portion of American politics today that sees it as unjust that borders exist, yeah. um, and the the problem just is that if you get so good at deconstructing ev- all the magic in the world that there's just none left. 
And it's hard to build a cathedral when you don't believe yeah. in I, I, I don't believe in right. Something. So, I mean, on a theoretical level, I think religion and maybe even the concept of God itself can uh, solve collective action problems, especially over long durations. I think as humans, we have very hard time thinking about long time horizons on the order of centuries. Uh, but what religions have done is coordinate behavior to prevent free riders and short term thinking. I don't know what replaces that. So if you, if, you, if you think if you are a free rider and you break the rule, God's going to punish you, you're less likely to do that. Um, or maybe you're less likely to steal from the common good. Um, and, and over the long time, uh, maybe that type of group outcompetes. The one who believes in God and has fewer free riders outcompetes the rationally self-interested agglomeration of individuals, <laughs> right? It feels just... Um, it feels depressing to to believe in that because uh we can't force ourselves to believe in god because we think it, might be, exactly it might be right. useful right um, <laughs> just because it's socially necessary for the continuation of society does not make it real and, and maybe this is i mean look at at uh demographics so across the west uh people are having fewer and fewer kids the more educated people are having fewer and fewer kids the replacement rates have fallen below uh what's necessary to keep you know, nations from growing. And, and some people champion that, thinking, oh, the environment's going to be better and so on. But actually, it's quite catastrophic because there just won't be enough workers, one, to pay for the unfunded liabilities on it, you know, in social safety net. Uh, but then moreover, is like we're just missing out on creativity, people working on things. And, uh, and so I think, it, I think it's a big problem. Now, why is that happening? I think I think it in part has to do with the same phenomenon where um, people are, are just more interested in their own pursuits and uh, in having fun. I mean, Western culture is very uh, wonderful at providing fun for people and, and, and the cost of having kids is really high. So if you're not, uh, if you're not Mormon or something, where <laughs> you see it as, as part of your daily practice and, and way of life that uh, family is important then you're less likely to have one. And so, I, you know, each individual, it makes sense. I mean, me, I'm 39, I have no kids, right? Um, you know, each individual is acting what's best by their lights. But over time, I wonder if this will harm our society. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm of very mixed opinions about what, what, um, what, what the modern world kind of looks like in terms of community. Like on the one hand, there's something really beautiful and nice about these micro communities of choice that we're joining mm -hmm. things like ephemeral and um, yeah. even just, you know, getting together with people that on the internet that share some interest of yours. Like I'm into uh, certain kinds of Buddhism and there's mm -hmm. blogs on that. And, um, but they, they don't quite have the, the grandeur of, of something that makes me, feel really that would, that would make me feel really dedicated to continuing it into the future mm -hmm. and i think it's that connection to the future that yeah. really made people want to have kids and have a family i think that's right in the past um you know they were connected to their people or their their mm -hmm. god their their and yep. they, they wanted a, a line to carry on that institution and that might happen on a subconscious level but when you feel like you're part of something big that's carrying into the future uh, um i think it's uh 
maybe your decisions when it comes to sacrificing your pleasure and your quality of life in order to uh, reproduce, um, your decision will change on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. It's sort of like the, our, uh, our groupings just aren't, you know, they... They they might give us some of that social connection, but yeah. they're not they're not quite grand enough. I yeah I worry about the idea of impermanence and quietism. I think uh, and maybe you can speak to this in Buddhist philosophy. But one and, and actually for that matter Stoicism, which seems to be making uh, it seems to be coming into vogue in in some of these uh, circles we're in, where um, I don't know lots of people are reading Marcus Aurelius and they're writing blog posts on Seneca. And, and then on the Buddhism side is this, this uh, theory of non-attachment and um, acceptance of impermanence. And, and I wonder if that tilts people's time horizons and preferences more to the present than the far future. With Stoicism, it's sort of this detachment from uh, things in this world that make us vulnerable. That could be children. It could be our careers. Uh, that we're supposed to not fully identify with and, and maybe even withdraw from. Um, the, uh, and then with, with Buddhism, I wonder if the turn inward uh, prevents people from undertaking long, arduous projects that involve multi-generations. <laughs> Don't know. I'd have to think about that one a bit. Yeah. Um, I'm not... Um, super well educated in every kind of Buddhism. Yeah, neither am I. But uh, recently, I've come into a few blog posts on the on the subject of tantric Buddhism, which very much embraces the world and mm. embraces things like physical pleasure and mm. reproduction and all the I think all the ordinary joys of life um, in a way that kind of maybe a more typical um, kinds of Buddhism don't. Um, there is a you know, a strong strand of detachment, I think. Yeah. Detachment from outcome in, in Buddhism. I'm not sure how they, how tantric Buddhism quite uh, toes the line yeah. there. Um, but I think you're right that um, f- for me, non-attachment is like, is a very powerful uh, psychological defense that I have mm-hmm. against pain. Um, when life causes me to, to suffer or to suffer dif- disappointment, yeah. then... Um, I can sort of retreat into my knowing that I am that I have like some sort of fundamental nature that doesn't change, mm. um, and um, that I that suffering is just an emotion like any other emotion. And it sort of comes and it goes, and um, a lot of people that that start studying any sort of meditation or a way to um, these are. Stoicism and Buddhism are sort of inward-focused philosophies. The idea is sort of um, maybe that by developing your internal resources, you can be more at peace regardless of what happens in your life. And a lot of people do worry that if they're more at peace regardless of what happens in their life, that they'll be more detached from the world. Yeah. And the sort of the ideal there might be a Buddhist monk that can... Sit. create a heaven within their own mind right? yeah they yeah. can just be in heaven by sitting there <laughs> for the rest for years and years and um and people fear that and yeah i think this this speaks to ultimate foundation foundational values for people and you know are you like how important is achievement in your own life how does that fit within the larger project of 
the fate of man and the centuries to come and is it important that you know man or consciousness or some whatever is valuable and precious about us is it important that that continue on for i don't know hundreds if not millennia hundreds of years or millennia versus what difference does it make and what are you trying to do (laughs) i'm I'm trying to get to sort of personally i'm trying to get to kind of an in-between place yeah which is um i I think it's important but i want i want to not be so attached to having my way of life continue that I'll be crushed if it if it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of variability. Yeah. Like, is there some way I can work towards what's valuable to me while also being non-attached to it? Mm. Um, like, can I have, can I do it by choice and not by desperate necessity? Mm. Um, like, can I have a playfulness or a, a joy about pursuing what I find to be valuable? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, one well, and maybe this is part of Buddhism, but kind of reconciling that paradox or sitting with it. Yeah, the par- the paradox is is there. Yeah, it's there. Uh, so, I th- one book that I enjoyed was Zen and the Art of Archery. I think it's a classic and um, maybe cliched at this point, but it, it, it is interesting that this guy's shooting arrows at a target but he's supposed to have no attachment to the outcome. So it's like, why are you even shooting the arrow at the target? And yet, uh, um, there you are. And the only way you can be good at it is if you do reach that level where you're not attached. It's almost like you have to subvert your own goal. The only way to attain your goal is through some subversion of it. I don't know. These paradoxes are hard to explain or, or articulate in words. I think that's, this is one reason why I've also been, um, you know, I wasn't, I was averse to philosophy mm. in in college is because at least more modern Western philosophy seems uncomfortable with paradox. Yeah. And um, paradox seems just so key to how I, I, I live. I, I live in it all mm. the time. And I think what you're talking about with the archery, that, that pattern I see all over the place. Like there's yeah. some way that being, especially when it comes to changing society on an interpersonal level, um, there's some way that you need to be detached from the outcome and also still pursue it. Mm-hmm. Because if you're attached to the outcome, then you become reactive to other people when they oppose you. Yeah. And there's, and if you're reactive to them, they become reactive to you mm-hmm. because humans mimic each other <laughs> and th- there's nothing. And they, they mimic opposition and resistance yeah. and reaction. So there's some way to change someone's mind. You have to be, uh, you have to be non-reactive to their opposition mm-hmm. to you. Like you have to be able to accept it and just let it pass through you without getting, without causing a, a big reaction. That's interesting. I like that. It's uh, maybe this isn't in the Western tradition either, but just uh, in the in the Zen Buddhist tradition, there is this sort of attention to craft and uh, beginners and masters and the learning process to move from one to the other and so the the idea of the beginner's mind is almost like a form of non-attachment where uh, because the action is spontaneous and comes from a a place that is true to to who we are uh, there's there's some virtue to it 
even if it's sloppy and mishandled. So if you're in a fight, maybe maybe you just react naturally as a beginner and maybe you get lucky, right? Or a beginner's luck, but, but it comes from a spontaneous place. And then you meet a teacher and that teacher fills you with rules about whatever the art is, archery, uh, martial arts, and so on. And in the process of doing that, it creates a, an overly conscious mind that is attached to those rules, understanding the context, trying to really uh, you know, reason out in any position what the next best move is. And it's only when you move away from that uh, practice of basing your decisions on rules that you move into a new territory where you return to the beginner's mind of spontaneous action. And I think that's somewhat in line with this idea of non-attachment. It's like attachment is actually that rational mind searching for uh, whatever the rules are and recipes to work at this moment. And it's when you're the master who can spontaneously act that you've reestablished yourself as unattached to, to those uh, rules and maybe even surpass them. And that's my understanding of some of this stuff, and it's not quite there. Um, but but one thing I do love, and applied to ethics and decision making, is like we we do live in a very rational society. People always want reasons for why you're doing something. Uh, it's often thought that the that the rules uh, in are just the way we learn things. Um, but I think it, it's more about the beginning of where we're at in any craft or or task. That's when the rules are the most important. And so we haven't internalized them yet. And we only become experts or masters when we move beyond them. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important pattern is sort of like incorporating the, the wisdom that is embedded in the rules, but yeah. then being able to drop them and sort of surpass them. Yeah, um, and depending on context and, and why this situation is anomalous from the others that look like it. Yeah, I think the... You know the the rules were made by past masters to yeah. to uh, teach novices, and once you, you attain mastery, mm-hmm. you the the true master must um, acknowledge his own competence, right? And recognize that he has every every he has to find the new he has to find his own rules. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's another paradox, right? Is the uh, it's like you have to learn the rules and then forget them, and somehow that's how you surpass them. But it, it, it's it's <laughs> I, I, maybe you see this in modern art where people just go straight to the breaking rules mm-hmm. part, right? And and it feels somewhat cheap. <laughs> I yeah. agree a million percent. I mean, this yeah. is very related to my favorite blog post of the past year. Okay. Um, but I. You know, I talked about that on the last podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, give me like the two sentence version. So um, it's on this um, person named Robert Keegan's. um, uh, He has a model of adult moral development. Okay. And adults generally move through stages um, uh, three, four, and five on his moral development chart. Uh, One and two are sort of for adolescents Mm. uh, and and children, but. so adults at stage three tend to make moral decisions uh, on a communal basis. Like, um, is this, uh, we, we'll make a moral decision based on the, on the idea, like, is this good for people I care about? Does this help people I like? Um, and so that's sort of the, the classic stage. Civilizations also kind of go through these stages. So mm-hmm. um, that's sort of the classic, uh, you know, tribe against tribe. Like if someone, um, if someone, uh, 
uh, hurt someone else in your society, well, which tribe does he belong to? If he's on our side, then we're going to fight for him. If he's on the other side, we're going to try to punish him. Um, and then there's the stage four thinking, which is more systematic, which uh, stage four is sort of where modern society comes from. We have the rule of law. Mm. We have... Um, meritocracy we have capitalist economic systems which are based on contract that's the same for everyone and um, sort of the idea of procedural justice and is a very stage four kind of concept and so is rationality any sort of systematic thinking and then uh, stage five is uh, sort of when a person realizes that no one system can operate without flaws like systems are tools yeah. and, and systems are not absolute um, and that's sort of the stage I felt I reached when I, for myself, when I, I sort of started becoming disillusioned with libertarianism, mm. which was still like the best system that I could think of, but it wasn't quite right. And I had to let go of ever finding a system of moral or political belief that yeah. was completely right. Um, and there's some way that uh, Keegan believes that the existence of stage five thinkers critiquing stage four thought uh, was devastating or might be devastating to modern society because people re read those critiques and never get to appreciate systematic thinking. Yeah, um, okay, that's good. So that's sort of like when you jump straight to yeah. making modern art that breaks the rules without ever having mm. learned how to paint. Right. Or um, That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And so maybe our university system is failing because it seems to be teaching that. It's like people don't have respect for uh, the systems that created much of the abundance that provides them with their way of life, and they just instantaneously go straight to harsh critique of everything. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a real problem. And, and, and it's sort of like this, what's so compelling about this system, um, and I'll post a link to this post so everybody can read it, is that it seems to have echoes throughout politics, ethics, art, yeah. um, just a lot of different domains of mm. human society. I, yeah, I think in, in Western philosophy, I think it, it's not really talked about this idea of the beginner, the novice, the, the proficient person, and, and then maybe ultimately the expert and master, and how that relates to things like the virtuous life, or uh, you know, maybe who we should learn from, uh, I've never heard it applied to social systems or uh, thinking about rules of coordination and I don't know politics and so on. That's that's fascinating to me and um, I don't know. That would be I, I think the educational systems that that rely on that are, are much more interesting than the ones that don't. Although I think there's a place for just self-expression with no rules, right? Well, I also like uh, just this thinking about like authentic impulse. Like I think. Uh, ultimately a good life is not one in which one is constantly checking oneself against rules yeah um, it is one in which uh, there's a certain freedom and, and looseness and easiness mm -hmm. um, and uh, so th this sort of pattern that, that we're talking about of attaining mastery where one can drop such a rules focusedness mm -hmm. like like yeah, I think so. One of the paradoxes of authenticity, right, is if you if you just be yourself, then you know maybe you'll shoot the arrow however way you want and never learn, right? And yeah. that's and that's authentic, right? Yeah. Uh, children are, are very authentic people. They tell you what they want pretty clearly whenever they want it. Um, but then I think 
I think there's a, a group of, of thinkers who see authenticity as something at the other end, sort of that, what we were talking about, where the, the expert is spontaneous in his action. It's not deliberated. It's not reflected upon. It's not you know, thought about yes, no. It's like it, it just spontaneously arises. And that is a form of authenticity that I think people maybe ought to aim for more often where it's it's okay you've got to put in the hours you've got to learn these rules and it takes discipline and practice and at the end of it there's an authenticity that will become available to you that is not there now yes it's a mature yeah. authenticity yeah it's uh not putting authenticity too high right to, to the point or not valuing it so high that you uh that you neglect actually learning about the world like there's some balance between the two that leads to the most creative output yeah um i I do want to um we're getting up at the end of our time and i want to make sure we have uh, a few minutes to talk about the education of young people okay which i know is a topic that's very dear to to your heart yep um so you were um one of the people who ran the teal fellowship which uh uh also known as 20 under 20, which at, at some point in time, which paid uh, young people under the under 20 years of age uh, $100,000 to drop out of school and pursue some dream of theirs. Uh, many did scientific research or built a startup um, or did some other project that um, under, under the theory that they would learn more about um, uh, about from interacting with the world and sitting in a classroom and also under the theory that young people are just more capable of things than, than we give them credit for. Um, well, I feel like I'm talking way too much about this because <laughs> uh, I'm excited about that, it too. That's a good, a good description. Uh, I mean, full disclosure, like I've yeah. worked with Michael uh, sort of on, on a few of the projects that we're talking about right. today. And I, I was briefly a mentor for the Teal Fellowship as well, but you were one of the people that were actually running it. Yeah, it started my first day of work. Uh, Jim O'Neill, a colleague at uh, Clarium, came to my desk and said we had to go to Peter's house uh, because the night before on the plane ride back from New York, they had decided to launch this new thing to pay people to work on stuff outside of schools. And I said, okay, I'm in, let's go. And uh, yeah, it was TechCrunch Disrupt that day. Peter decided it'd be a good day to announce it. And uh so we, we fleshed out a lot of the rudiments of the program uh, in, in the beginning there. We, uh, we learned a lot. Yeah, that got us started. So it was $100,000 to 20 people per year. Uh, in the beginning, a lot of them, you know, some people worked on startups, other people worked on nonprofits, and then still others on scientific research. And the idea was exactly as you said. We thought that for some subset of people, uh, learning by doing might be better. Uh, than sitting in a classroom or you know whatever fulfilling their requirements and and the mission of the program was never to say that everyone should drop out of school that all colleges are corrupt uh, what we were really arguing was that uh, our society has sort of has become monolithic in its uh, view of success where it seems to be the case that there's only one path through and it's through universities towards a fulfilling and uh, extraordinary career so the, the fellowship was meant to show that that wasn't true or you know, that we could support people in a different way. And um, yeah, it's, and the program is still going. Uh, we took t- about 20 people per year 
the sixth class now entering. Uh, Danielle Strachman, we hired 10 days after that first day, and uh, we worked with the others on and, and led the program. What we, uh, yeah, we learned a lot about, um, you know, what's possible in this world. And, uh, and, and what, I mean, one thing that, like, the tailwinds we see are just that, for instance, technical talent is in such high demand here in Silicon Valley that, that companies don't really care about your credentials at all. They only care, you know, what languages are you proficient in and <laughs> how good are you? And, uh, and those people can stand to make very high salaries. I mean, I, I meet interns now from Facebook and Amazon. They're making something like $30,000, $35,000 for a summer's work uh, at 18, 19. So I think we're starting to see open up these career paths that don't require uh, a bachelor's degree or a four-year, traditional four-year degree. And I think they'll still have the status and sort of excitement that people want out of careers, people who are talented or intelligent. And and I think the, the fellowship helped establish that, even though I think also that the trend was was coming. Um, I, I'm worried about, again, it comes back to homogeneity, where if everyone is competing to impress the same admissions committees, that sets a strange that, that creates a s- strange set of incentives through the K through 12 years where people know parents are picking what vacations their kids take uh, or what camps they go to, um, what they do, you know, what conspicuous acts of, con- of philanthropy they take on just to impress a, commis- a, a committee when they're 18. And instead of pursuing their passions, and that could be anything from math to chess or whatever, they're, they're all becoming alike. And, and I didn't invent the phrase, I forget the author, but he had this term excellent sheep where people are becoming very adept and skillful and disciplined about uh, pleasing those committees, filling out those applications, taking those tests. And I worry that it, 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 it means we're filtering out a lot of the creative energies out there that, that might emerge if people were allowed to pursue their own interests. Um, so to the extent that we can alter that system with the program, I, I think that's wonderful. Um, you, the, the phrase higher education bubble had been around in t- t- 2010 when the program started, but I don't know, the news, it just turned into a lightning rod, and, and I really loved how it became a national debate, and it remains so to this day. So I, I think student debt is still a huge problem, a lot of people taking on money because the cost of college had, I think, quadrupled or quintupled in real terms since the early fifth, early 1980s. Uh, that's at a faster rate than healthcare and housing, counting the housing bubble. Um, and so what? how do we account for this increase of cost and in some ways the same quality product? I don't think English literature is being taught any better than it was in 1980. Maybe even worse. Uh, and in other places, maybe things are better because the resources, okay, I get it. The labs require more. And, and, and there are more people to hire and maybe things get expensive. But but students are having trouble with this, and so they're taking on a lot of debt. I think that's on the order of about $1.3 trillion in aggregate at this point. And again, I think this homogenizes culture because people graduate, and instead of trying something exciting or risky with their careers, uh, they have to start paying off those loans, and so they'll take a safe remunerative job. Uh, rather than pursuing something that might be exciting and interesting. And so a lot of, I, I think you look at the number of startup companies, we live in Silicon Valley, you'd think we're, and we are in a bit of mania 
in, in, in things, but nationally, the number of companies started by young people is down from where it was in the 70s and 80s. And I think, I think that loan story is part of the reason. Yeah, I know for, for me, um, that story certainly speaks true. I definitely have taken um, jobs that were less risky instead of, instead of pursuing something that might be more individual and, and risky um, because of my student loan debt, yeah. debt that I've had in the past. Um, the, uh, I, I see that as a theme sort of throughout your description of the educational system there is sort of how it's squeezing, it's making it more costly for people to take risks. Yeah. Um, because risks by definition don't always pay off. That's really well said. And if your risks don't pay off and you don't get into that elite college, it's mm-hmm. actually costing you a lot down the line. Yeah. Um, and there's there's some way that um, that colleges value diversity, but they don't seem to be uh, devaluing diversity of life experience. Um, That's right. And, and to speak to like colleges, what really differentiates Stanford and Harvard? We're talking about rootless cosmopolitanism again, where you could interchange all those professors and all the classes would still be the same. I think it's pretty hard to think of a school that would offer a very different curriculum from ones you would just find if you went to one school or the other. So they have different names, but really they're teaching the same things. Yeah, I think maybe it's uh, like there might be a difference in community or you know weather. Yeah, um, that makes people think a little bit differently on the on the coast. But sure, the, warm uh, versus the, cold north. And... The, the uh, certainly the. Um, Certainly, the curriculum is, uh, or or syllabi of various elite schools, uh, very similar. Yeah. Um, so, if I appointed you dictator, president, czar, mm-hmm. um, Caesar, Kaiser, <laughs> okay, yeah. emperor of the United States higher education system, yeah. um, philosopher king, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, how would you like to see it change? I would start with some fairly traditional responses to the problem in, in the sense of uh, I don't know why the government is in the, same, in the production of education as well as uh, the subsidy of it. And what that means is you look at a lot of public schools. It's like, why is the state running the school? Why aren't they just paying for people to go places? As they do with college, with, with grants and financial aid. GI Bill or whatever. I mean, so, so yeah, I would love to see more competition for dollars if the state just uh, had, had a voucher system. That would be something I would advocate for, especially not just in poor neighborhoods, but even in affluent ones. I think um, that would be exciting. I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, very affluent suburb, but we had a stagnant public school and they spent a ton of money per student per year. What if I had that money uh, to find an edge, you know, school, small, medium, large, that suited my values and interests. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd, so I'd love to see that develop. Um, you know, I, I'd look into the accreditation process. I think it's pretty difficult to start new schools, whether K through 12 or universities. So the barrier to entry is really high. I might even look into uh, the nonprofit status of some of these schools, like Harvard. So Harvard has a $38 billion endowment that's larger than the GDP of a number of countries. 
And so the school is pretty much a hedge fund with a dorm and an athletic team and a library attached and some labs. It's pretty extraordinary. And so I don't know what's going on there and if that's good for the health of things. And so maybe maybe there's some kind of policy uh, where you could you know, maybe get them to target resources towards uh, trying to provide you know, an education to more people so it's not exclusive. Um, I would probably change the student loan system. I don't know. I, I don't have an easy answer, but the problem right now is that whenever the feds uh, guarantee any sort of increase in subsidy to college students, the colleges just rack up, you know, jack up the price accordingly. So $5,000 subsidy, tuition goes up $5,000. No one's the wiser. Yeah. So we just see a lot of cost inflation driven by those government guarantees. It's like a yeah. pipeline from the government into the <laughs> yeah. pockets of the colleges. Yeah, right. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I, I'd love to see, yeah, to, maybe this is the theme of our conversation, but greater diversity, true diversity. And so I love the homeschooling movement. I wish there were different styles of education that emerged. Maybe there are different degrees. Maybe there are nano degrees where people pick up uh, badges like Boy Scouts and, and they're able to demonstrate their competence. Behind all this change, I think one of the biggest problems is we have no way of measuring uh, how, how well we're teaching something beyond tests. It's like everything, one thing I noticed is that a lot we use proxy, uh, time as a proxy measurement for value in education. So you study courses at college by the hour, you take hour-long exams, you, uh, it's, uh, you obtain a number of hours credits in order to graduate, you circle around campus for four years. It's like that, that really only makes sense in a world where we can't directly measure progress because if someone attains some level of, of proficiency in, in learning, that should be what determines you know, whether or not they have the credential, not did they walk around a clock tower for some time period. You know, this this is actually you know a major um, hurdle in the sort of online ed, okay. online education yeah. movement, um, which I was, you know, I had a front row seat um, yeah. working at Coursera for three years. But uh, we talked, uh, we had visiting speakers come from like community colleges that mm -hmm. wanted to incorporate more incorporate more online classes in their curriculum. Yeah, um, and there's a lot of regulations about even like how much physical time students have to spend okay. in a classroom yeah. for it to be accredited. Um, so the, that's weird. The so you sit the, your ass in the seat for a number of hours, right? Yeah. You know, I forget the specific regulation, but they're all the dreams people have of more flexible degrees. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of them are hindered by the hour system. Like a student has to spend a certain number of hours in the class for wow, it to awful. count as a certain number of credit hours and you have to end federal subsidies go along with credit hours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's this book on uh, the transition in England from this uh, patronage based aristocratic system of governance to a civil servant competence based one. So from the 18th century to the 19th century, it's called the institutional revolution. And it, it kind of blew my mind because it touched on some of these uh, issues about where measurement is missing. How do people solve problems? And then when it arrives, how can you, you know, what happens? And so you look at the history of the British Navy and before longitude existed, people were just, uh, captains were much more susceptible to cheating, free riding and lying. It's like you send your captain out to the, to the Atlantic 
and without longitude, he doesn't know where he is, so he can actually avoid conflict. He doesn't have to fight in that war you want him to fight, and he can say, oh, the weather, I, I was lost. Uh, I lost my way, and so on. And so it became, uh, they had to change the incentives of the profession uh, to try to cope with that problem. But then all of a sudden measurement comes along, and, and it's possible, it's like, no longer is that excuse allowed. Like, I'm sorry, I got lost. That just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make sense. Uh, and so you see a lot of transformations in the, in the way they govern things. And, and I think school systems right now, we just have no way of measuring in real time someone's competence, level of competence. It's like, why are we testing them once a week or once a month for an hour? People should be judged at every moment what their zone of competence is and then pushed a little bit further. And that failure point should indicate, you know, where that is. It shouldn't be a, a tattoo that you have for life. Uh, yeah, there's some way that schools right now, um, w- when you're really learning something, like when I'm choosing to learn something, mm. um, like guitar or programming, like I fail all the time because yeah, I'm, at the, right. I'm at the edge of my competence and that's where I'm learning. Um, and at school, the idea is you'll never fail. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you want to be a straight A student if you're doing good at school. And that's exactly how, how not to learn because you're not going anywhere near the edge of your learning envelope. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, just finish up with a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, cool. If you had any advice for, um, let's, let's say we're talking to someone who's 16 today. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any advice for them and how to go about finding a career? I would be, I guess it depends who they are. I think they should, people should be careful about the loans they take on, especially if it's to pursue uh, subjects like philosophy, maybe, or poetry. Um, I think that can be hazardous to your long-term career prospects, or at least narrow the zone uh, of options. I, would, um, I wouldn't suggest particular subjects. I wouldn't say, oh, technology is important, therefore you need to study computer science, something like that. Um, but I, I, I would just say don't trust the authorities and try to learn as much as you can. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to give a shout-out to the Obama administration for finally uh, coming through for me and my yeah. student loans. Um, yeah, they passed a program called Repay E. Um, in October of 2015 which now um, caps the total amount that you have to pay on your student loans at 10% of your income Um, so if you're like me and have in the past been caged in by your student loans well now there is a program which will allow you to pursue some of your less remunerative dreams Mm. Um, so uh, for anybody out there who is finding themselves trapped under uh, four-figure monthly student loan payment like I was, um, <laughs> it may be it may be reduced uh, quite drastically. Yeah. Um, so there's just there are some new options just coming online. Just want to you you must be there. sad that Bernie Sanders didn't win a uh, free college for all. For that reason. <laughs> for that reason. Um, selfishly, yes. Yeah. Uh, although what that what what his policies may have done to the economic health of the nation, uh, I don't, it's hard to know. Um, what's something that you've changed your mind on in, in the past year? Um, hmm, let's see, I'll scan. I, 
I used to. I mean, there's a, a range of things I'll just throw out there. I uh, I had withdrawn from public debate about issues and politics and policy, and uh, because I thought I think one, it's very hard to change people's minds. To go back to that model where a lot of these things are emotional, I think it's very hard to use reason to change people's views. Uh, I think uh, a lot of our political systems are in place and encrusted and, and full of all sorts of problems that prevent reform uh, by vote or by protest. And, uh, and, and I just didn't have the time, but I'm somewhat, I, I'm very depressed by the current presidential election and the options in it. And so I, I've taken upon myself to try to engage more with people, anyone from people on the street, in bars, uh, to Facebook and the internet, uh, where I think it may be important to, to argue some of these views that I just, uh, I, I wouldn't have done before. That's very slight, you know, so that's, you know, that's very slight. I think maybe uh, like on the political side, I think in the last year, 18 months, we've seen you know, the advent of smartphone cameras has opened up a lot of issues in um, policing in cities and, and communities. And, um, you know, I guess I, I, I just assumed that a lot of cops were racist, but it has sort of opened my eyes just how corrupt some of these um, police departments are. And, um, and, and whereas in the past I may not have thought civil rights was still an important political issue, especially when it comes to policing, I think that's something I've, I've, I've seen as, as rising in importance. Um, you know, I, my theory, I can offer all sorts of theories about the macro economy, especially going back to the early 20, you know, like 2010, 11, where I was, I, I was with the group that feared with all this debt coming onto the books uh, that inflation was imminent and, and all sorts of hyperinflation catastrophes could come after years and years of quantitative easing and so on. I thought Europe would break up by now. I thought Greece, that crisis would come to a head. I've just been wrong across the board on a lot of these things where either, you know, the, the people in power have been able to kick the can somehow and uh, or, or maybe they figure out a way to muddle through. So think institutions are more stable yeah. than, than we think, or at least I, yeah, I, I've, I've, that's true. I've made many of those same predictions as you. I've been right. waiting for Europe to break up uh, yeah. sort of since 2011, um, maybe a little bit. Yeah, since 2011, I think was, was the, the first crisis, um, and it has not happened. That's one example, but yeah. um, there's, a, there's a lot of ruin in the institution. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, so that's surprising to me how wrong I've been on major macroeconomic questions on year to 18-month horizons. I've been pretty off on that. Well, thanks, thanks, Mike. Um, I guess before we go, is there any, um, uh, is there one piece of media, a book or a video or audio that you'd like to recommend to people listening? Interesting. Just on these subjects that we talked about? Or if you could recommend one piece uh, for people to check out, um, what would it be? What do you think is most important for people to? I mean, I, we started the conversation with Robert Nozick, so I'm going to say dive into his work. If a lot of people read Anarchy, State, Utopia, and that's heady political theory, but I actually fell in love with him as a thinker, uh, deep or deeper in love with his uh, second book called Philosophical Explanations. 
has chapters on, you know, a chapter on why is there something rather than nothing. There's a chapter on the foundation of ethics. There's a chapter on the meaning of life. And, and I just love his, the scope of his erudition. His footnotes are fascinating. His bibliography kept me busy for years and years. And he's, he's fun. He's just really insightful and fun. And that's rare in an academic philosopher. So Robert Nozick, Philosophical Explanations. I'll definitely pick that up. Uh, you made me more excited to read Robert Nozick. I guess I had assumed that it would be equally as dry and boring as John Rawls before, but uh, yeah, but but now you have. Yeah, I think you'll like. I, I think you'll like philosophical explanations as well. Cool. Should I start with that one? Yeah, go for that. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mike. That's all the time we have. Um, I enjoyed talking. I enjoyed talking. With thanks you for well. having me on. Thanks. All right.